we have been for some time now in a, in a kind of a disjointed effort to try to teach two separate series here at the same time. I'm not sure how this is working out, but uh, it's been very interesting to me, and I've, been, I've enjoyed the opportunity to study more than one thing. Uh, what we're kind of doing, for those of you who are with us maybe for the first time, is we're, we're, uh, we're splitting our efforts. Uh, every other week we have been in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll be back there, and we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 8. We've been going, trying to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Nehemiah. And then on uh, the alternating weeks, we've been trying to do uh, kind of some topical studies, uh, which were, were roughly uh, grouping under the idea of digging deeper, digging deeper into various different things. And two weeks ago, we started digging deeper into our statement of faith as a church. We thought it was a good thing for us to get our grips around that. I mean, some of you have never even heard that statement of faith or read that statement of faith. Uh, uh, so I think it's very important that we understand what it is that we believe as a church. And so let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get into that again today. Father, we thank you now for the Bible. We thank you, Lord, for this subject of all subjects that we're going to tackle today. And I pray, Lord God, for the filling of the Holy Spirit of, of God. I pray, Lord, that if I'm ever going to mess up on a subject, may it not be this one. I pray. Uh, Lord, for your guidance as we try today to talk about our incomparable Lord Jesus Christ. Bless this message, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's start just as we did two weeks ago. Article 2 of the Friendship Bible Church Constitution reads as follows. We believe there is one and only one living and true God, and that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of the scriptures, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. We believe the biblical accounts of the creation of the universe through the direct and immediate creative acts of God. We believe in the unique creation of man in the image and likeness of God, and that physical life is his sovereign gift. The deliberate killing of the unborn, the sick, disabled, or elderly is wrong and an abomination before him. We believe that all men are sinners by nature and in conduct and cannot save themselves. We believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and that he is both fully God and fully man. We believe in the substitutionary death of Christ and in his literal bodily resurrection from the dead. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith in the finished redemptive work of Christ alone, and that no works of man, however good, need to be or can be added for salvation. We believe evidence of salvation appears in the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. We believe in the eternal salvation of all who put their faith in Christ, that all who are truly born again are kept secure by God the Father. We believe in the primacy of the church as an ordained institution of God with Christ as its head. We recognize the authority of the local church and subscribe to the ordinances of baptism by immersion and the Lord's Supper for all those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We believe in the reality and personality of the devil or Satan, the enemy of God and man, and that he is destined for eternal judgments in the lake of fire. We believe in the bodily resurrection, immortality, and rapture of all believers at Christ's imminent coming, and that his coming is both pre-tribulational and premillennial. We believe in the existence of a literal heaven and a literal hell, and that all men, and eternity in one of the two places. 
As we dig, 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 try to dig deeper into this last time, we concentrated on what we believe about bibliology, or what, that, what our statement of faith has to say about the Bible. And as a result of that, we concentrated on just a couple of statements, and there really only one. We concentrated on the statement that says, We believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of the Scriptures consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Well, today, I'd like us to dig deeper into what I think may be the most glorious of all topics, the most glorious of all persons. And I want us to dig deeper into what we believe about Jesus Christ. There are a couple of things that we read there. Did you catch them? That describe what we believe about Christology. And Christology is just a big word that means the study of Christ. A couple of statements that we saw in there. We, we, for example, say that we believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and that he is both fully God and fully man. There was another statement that said we believe in the substitutionary death of Christ and in his literal bodily resurrection from the dead. I'd like for us today to concentrate on the first of those. The very first. We believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and that he is both fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. And actually, we're going to only concentrate on the first part of that. No, the first part of that, second part. First part of the second part. Which is, he is fully God. That's what I want us to talk about today. And in a couple of weeks, we'll tackle the other. We cannot tackle the both in one message and do justice to it. So I want us today to consider that we believe Jesus Christ is God. And I guess a good text verse for us to use for this would be Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 9. You can turn there if you'd like. Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 9. And we don't have a long text we're going to read today. This is just one verse. And then we're going to be jumping all over through the Bible. So you might want to just have them ready and be ready to fly around. Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 9, though, says, For in him that is in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Bodily. And if you think about that verse, it covers both halves of the equation. He's fully God and he's fully man. All the fullness of the Godhead. Bodily. Do you remember when the novel of the Da Vinci Code came out? Anybody remember that nonsense rag that came out? And do you remember that uh, uh, it claimed to contain all kinds of new and sensational evidence uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it, of course, contains nothing of the sort. It was nothing but the same old rehashed, recycled heresies that have been uh, plaguing Christianity down from the very beginning. But the basic premise and the basic heresy that was uh, put forth in that book was simply that Jesus was not God and that people in the early church did not believe that he was God. You may remember if you read the book or seen the movie that one of the main characters in there says, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man, nonetheless, a mortal. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that true? Did the early followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, did they just think of him as a man, or did they recognize that he was God? Let's look at just several passages and see uh, what, the, what the Bible says about that. Look over at Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. And we'll start reading in verse number 50. Matthew 27, verse 50. And of course, at this point, we have Jesus on the cross. As a matter of fact, we have Jesus dying on the cross. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many 
So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the great things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was just a mortal man. Is that what your Bible says? Truly this was the Son of God. Flip over to John chapter 20 and verse number 26. Let's see another, another reference. John chapter 20, verse 26. And here, of course, we have Thomas after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, let's start reading at verse 24 to get the whole context. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the prints of the nails and put my finger into the prints of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, You're just a mortal man. Now, my Lord and my God. One more, back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And we could go on and on with this, but there's, these are just a few I wanted to share with you. Matthew chapter 16, let's look at verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now remember the... the uh, uh, the pretext of the Da Vinci Code was that the disciples never believed he was God. They just believed he was mortal man. Obviously, this particular passage had never been read by that individual. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we could go on with this. Those are only three examples. There are others. The Bible presents absolutely clear evidence that Jesus was and is the Son of God and God the Son. Matter of fact, it is such a vital, a vital truth of Scripture that I would go so far as to say it probably is the very central thing that we need to understand in the Bible. Let me, let me read you a quote from a book by uh, J. Oswald Sanders called The Incomparable Christ, which, by the way, is a great book, and you ought to read it. But let me just read what he says about this. He says, is, is any other question so far-reaching and important as the question, who is Jesus? Is he or is he not God? If Jesus is not God, then there is no Christianity. And we who worship him are nothing more than idolaters. Conversely, if he is God, those who say he was merely a good man or even the best of men are blasphemers. More serious still, if he is not God, then he is a blasphemer in the fullest sense of the word. If he is not God, he is not even good. That's an amazing thought. Think about that. If he is not God, he's not even good. It has rightly been maintained that there is no stopping between Unitarianism and Rationalism after Christ. The deity of Christ is the key doctrine of Scripture. Reject it, and the Bible becomes a confused jumble of words devoid of any unifying theme. Accept it, and the Bible becomes an intelligible and ordered revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is the center of Christianity, and the conception we form of Christianity is therefore the conception we have of Him. We believe that Jesus Christ is 
the Son of God. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Let me just share with you some of the evidence from the Bible this morning. Reasons why we believe Jesus to be deity. Why we believe Jesus to be God. The first would be because he possesses the attributes of God. He possesses the attributes of God. The things that are true of God are true of Jesus. There are, throughout our Bible, we see various characteristics that are ascribed to God that cannot possibly be ascribed to us. None of us can possibly live up to these things, but they are true of God. For example, the Bible says that God is eternal. It also says that Jesus is eternal. Amazingly, in John chapter 1, verse number 15, we read that John bare witness of him in Christ, saying, This was he of whom I spake, he that comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He was before me. And so John said he was before John. He had existed before that. John chapter 8 and verse number 58, Jesus said unto them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He was before John. He was also before Abraham. John chapter 17 and verse number 5, in his great high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He was before John. He was before Abraham. He was before the world came into being. He is described in Colossians chapter 1 as the firstborn of all creation. In John chapter 1 and verse number 1 we read he was in existence in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2 says he has existed from the days of eternity. And Hebrews chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 9 say that he continues forever. He's eternal. He's eternal and only God is eternal. Another of the attributes of God is omnipresence. Omnipresence, that comes from the Greek prefix omni, which means all, and presence, which means presence. Omnipresence, in other words, he's everywhere present at once. Can you do that? Can you be over there while you're over here? Can you do that? I can't do that. Can you do that, Bob? None of us can do that, but God can do that because God is omnipresent. And the Bible tells me that Jesus is also omnipresent. John chapter 3 and verse number 13, No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now remember where he was at this particular time. He was on earth. But it also says right there that he is in heaven. So he was in heaven while he was on earth. In John chapter, or Matthew chapter 20, 18 and verse number 20, Jesus said, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. That was looking forward to today. That was when he was knowing that he was going to be back in heaven. He was saying, well, I'm in heaven. I'm going to be here with you. On earth. Matthew chapter 28, verse number 20, he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Wait a minute. I thought he had descended into heaven. He did, but he's also here. So he is everywhere present at once. He was in heaven while he's on earth. He is on earth while he's in heaven. He's everywhere you are at the same time. He is everywhere that I am at the same time that he is everywhere that everybody else is. Only God can be that. Omnipresent, everywhere, present, at once. Remember the story of Nathaniel. Nathaniel, uh, when he was, before he was uh, called uh, by the Lord, Nathaniel uh, was sitting under a fig tree, and, and uh, Jesus spoke with him. And Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He wasn't anywhere near the fig tree, but he saw him there. Where Nathaniel was, Jesus was. Even when he was somewhere else. And where you are, Jesus is. Even when he's somewhere else. Only God can do that. Only God. He's omnipresent. He's also omniscient. Omniscient. That means he knows everything. All-knowing. 
John chapter 21, he said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. Peter was right. He knows everything. Colossians chapter 2, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He knows everything. Everything. If we had time this morning, we could go to John chapter 4 and talk about the woman of the, uh, of the well, the Samaritan woman. Jesus knew all about her. He said, go call your husband. Not because he didn't know about her husband, but because he wanted her to admit it. She said, I don't have a husband. He says, you're absolutely right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the one you have now is not your husband. He truly said that. He knew it. He knew all about her. He knows everything. He knew the thoughts of men. Luke chapter 6 and verse number 8. And by the way, isn't that a scary thought? He knows what we're thinking. You don't know what I'm thinking. Thankfully. I don't know what you're thinking. But Jesus knows our thoughts. Uh, Luke chapter 6 and verse number 8. He knew their thoughts. And said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. Luke chapter 11 verse 17. He, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. He knows the thoughts. So he's omniscient. He's also omnipotent. Omnipotent, that word means all-powerful. Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful. There is one word found throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, that describes the omnipotence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that word is? It's the word miracle. Miracle. He demonstrated power over demons. Can you do that? He demonstrated power over disease, over death. Over the very elements of nature. Over all things. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 28, we quoted this a minute ago, a different part I want you to see now. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me. What an arrogant statement that would be. Except for the fact it's true. All power. He's omnipotent. And he is immutable. Immutable, that's a big word that means he never changes. He never changes. He cannot change. Hebrews chapter 1, As a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same. Thy years shall not fail. Hebrews 13, verse number 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. And so he's eternal. He's everywhere present at once. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's unchangeable and unchanging. Only God is those things. Only God. And yet Jesus is. The evidence is clear. Jesus is God in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, Father. And so one of the evidences that we have is the fact that he uh, exhibits the attributes of God, but that's not all. There's plenty more where that came from. We also could look to the fact that he holds the offices of deity. In other words, not only is, is he what God is, he does what God does. Or at least what God would be expected to do. The Bible tells me Jesus creates. He is the creator. John chapter 1 and verse number 3, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, By him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Hebrews chapter 1, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of thine hands. He creates. Can you do that? Only God can do that. Not only does he create, though he upholds. He holds it all together. He got it going. He keeps it going. He upholds it. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 is a fascinating verse. It says, He is before all things, and by, all, by Him all things consist. That word consist appears in the King James and the New King James. Most of the other versions translate that hold together. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. 
I one time was reading an article or something about about the basic building block of matter, which is, of course, you know, the atom. And I remember this particular thought that came out of this, wherever I first read this, uh, which has never really left me. It's always been interesting to me. The question was raised in this, in this article I was reading. What is it that holds an atom together? Have you ever thought about that? If you remember your, uh, your physics class, if you had Mr. Rossi, I'm sure you remember this. If you remember your physics class, you remember that an atom consists of several components. There is a nucleus, right? The nucleus consists of protons and neutrons all together in the center of the atom. And then there are electrons which orbit around it. you remember that? And of course you probably remember that the electrons are, uh, they, they are negatively charged, right? Negatively charged as they orbit around. And the protons are positively charged. And the neutrons, of course, have no charge. And so the question that I remember coming up with this article I was reading is what holds those protons together in the middle of that atom? Because we know from all of our other study of physics, do we not, that like forces repel. Have you ever taken a magnet and tried to stick it together and you know that if you put the two light poles together, it repels. Positive charges should just, atoms should just blow to pieces. What's holding them together? And, and I, was really, I was really shocked by that and, and, and I've wondered about that for many, uh, for a long time. And I came across another article from someone much more learned than me. Let me, let me share with you what he says about it. He's a physicist of some sort. He says, you may have noticed something odd about the atom. If like charges repel each other and opposite charges attract, what keeps the protons in the nucleus, who all have the same charge, from flying apart? This is a real difficulty, and it puzzled scientists for many years. At first they believed the nucleus contained a few electrons whose negative charge helped neutralize the protons' positive charge, making a kind of cement that held the nucleus together. Eventually, though, further experiments showed the nucleus contained neutrons instead because, and because the neutron carries no electric charge, it cannot hold the nucleus together by electrical forces. This still leaves the possibility that some other force exists, some force which operates between protons and neutrons and makes them attract each other. Because this force must be strong enough to overcome the proton's electrical repulsion, scientists termed it the strong nuclear force. We now have a fairly good understanding of the way the strong force operates, though why such a force exists in the first place is still an unanswered question. I submit to you the Bible has the answer to that. I submit to you that Jesus is the strong force that holds it all together. I submit he is the one by whom all things consist and hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Only God can do that. He creates. He holds it all together. So the attributes of deity tell us he is God. The fact that he uh, holds the offices of deity tells us he is God. It doesn't stop there. He also exercised the privileges of deity. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. Can you make that claim? He did. Over and over. He claimed that he will one day raise the dead in the resurrection. That's an astonishing claim if you're not God. He claimed that one day he will judge all things. And so he claimed the very prerogatives of deity. He is referred to by names that equate to deity. In Revelation chapter 22, he is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the resurrection and the life in John chapter 11. He said in John chapter 8, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He called himself by the very name of God. 
the most holy name of God. In Matthew chapter 1, he is referred to as Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he is referred to by names that equate to deity. Are we justified as a church in saying we believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and that he is both fully God and fully man? I submit that we are. Fully God. Fully God. There's more evidence, but we'll stop there for sake of time. Let me just make a couple of applications and be done. Because you might be asking yourselves, what does it matter to me here in Randolph, Ohio? What is, what is the application? How does this apply to my life? And let me just suggest a couple of ways that it does. Just a couple of ways. If and since Jesus is the Son of God, I would suggest we ought to respond to him as such. That's one application. We ought to respond to him as such. And, and if you are saved, that response must be worship. It must be service. How could it be anything else? In Matthew chapter 14 and verse 33, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. If he is the Son of God, those of us who are saved must worship. Too many Christians, too many Christians seem to be waiting for, for some thunderbolt to come from heaven and, uh, and, and convince them that they ought to worship and serve the Lord. It ought to be something serious in their life, but I suggest you the thunderbolt Lord came. The thunderbolt came in Bethlehem in a manger. It's already come. He is what he says he is. He is who he says he was. And our response as believers must be, must be, to worship and to serve him always. But what if you've not yet decided to trust Christ? Maybe you haven't made that decision. Maybe you don't know Jesus as your Savior. Then your response needs to be different. The only response that makes any sense is to hear and to believe and to receive. John chapter 3 and verse number 18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John chapter 1 says, As many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. It's the only response that makes any sense. If he is who he said he was, you need to hear. You need to believe. You need to receive him as your Savior. Because if you do not, you will eventually anyway. If you don't trust him in this life and gain salvation and eternity with him, you will bow before him before you go to hell. Romans chapter 14, as it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. So since Jesus is the Son of God, we should respond to him as such. And the second application I would suggest is this. Since Jesus is the Son of God, what do we have to worry about? What do we have to worry about? He's bigger than any problem we could ever have. He's bigger than all of our struggle with sin. He's bigger than our endless failures. He's, he's bigger than everything. He is God. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Jeremiah said, Oh, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Later on, God said the same thing, but he said it kind of as a question. He said, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And we know the answer, No! Nothing is too hard for God. That's why the songwriter could say, Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely? Long for heaven and home. When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eyes on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Let not your heart be troubled, his tender word I hear. And 
resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Whenever I am tempted, whenever clouds arise, when songs give place to sighing, when hope within me dies, I draw the closer to him. From care he sets me free, his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Matthew chapter 27, now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And I assure you this morning, my friend, that the centurion and those who stood around the cross, gazing in a patient, they had it right. He was and is the Son of God and God the Son. And so we as a church say, we believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and that he is both fully God and fully man. As a church, we believe that. The question this morning, the question must be this morning, do you? Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you so much for Jesus, the very centerpiece of it all. And I pray this morning that as we sing now and prepare to draw our service to a close, that you'll take these these verses of scripture that have been read today. You'll take these thoughts, these truths from the Bible. And Lord, I pray you'll burn them into our hearts. Father, there may be some here today as believers who have become discouraged, who are down, who are going through hard times and have forgotten who it is that is our Lord and Savior. He is fully God and nothing is too hard for him. And I pray today, Father, if there are those who just need to be encouraged and uplifted and, and have the joy of their salvation restored, may it be true today. Maybe they need to step out as we sing. Maybe they need to come forward and just spend some time with you rejoicing in what they have in you. Asking forgiveness for the times they've forgotten. And Lord, there may be some here today who don't know you as Savior. I thank you that we have some visiting. I thank you we have some coming back who visited before. But Lord, I pray, in a crowd of this size, one never knows. There may be some who have been coming for a long time who have not yet made a profession of faith. Lord, there may be some here today who, if they were to die today, they don't know if they would go to heaven. They might hope it, they might want it, they might long for it, but they don't know it. And so I pray today that they would remember who it is we're talking about, Jesus, the Son of God, the one who died on the cross for them, and who now simply says, believe, believe on me and be saved. And so I pray if there are those here today who need to understand that, who need to get that nailed down, who need to get that settled once and for all, that they might go out of this place knowing that they're on their way to heaven, that they're eternally secure. I pray today that as we sing, perhaps they might step out. Let us show them from the Bible how they can live. Father, thank you for Jesus. Fully God. Jesus. In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead. Bodily. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.